everyone, and welcome to episode four of the Rough Draft Podcast. This is Nate Leakway, who will be one of your hosts for this episode. In this episode, John will be having an interview with uh, Dr. Cope, who is a professor of rhetoric here at the college, and they'll be talking about the historical influence of women on rhetoric in general and on the importance of rhetoric in political campaigns and elections. And then later on, uh, we're going to be covering and discussing the upcoming senatorial and gubernatorial election in Pennsylvania. We'll be doing an overview of the candidates for both races and uh, having a discussion about that. So let's, uh, let's jump right in. Hello, everyone. This is your producer, Julian. Talking here today with Dr. Cope. Dr. Cope, thank you for coming on. My pleasure. To start things off, how was your fall break? It was good. I was down in Tennessee hiking with my family. Oh, nice. Mm -hmm. So what was Tennessee like? Well, we were way up in the Smoky Mountains, and it was beautiful. Okay, nice. But further down off the mountains, it was, you know, 70 degrees. But up in the mountains, it was cool, and the leaves were changing. Nice, yeah. It was pretty. Definitely. So I guess we're just going to talk today about women's rhetoric and voting. This upcoming midterm election is very important, not only on the federal level, but uh, also on the state level. Mm -hmm. So... Just a general question to start off. In the professional writing major, there's an emphasis on the relationship between rhetoric and citizenship. For our listeners outside of the major, or who maybe need a refresher, how, how are rhetoric and democracy connected? Well, some people, one person, and now I can't remember who, um, actually defined rhetorical education as, as citizenship education. So, like, there's a view of rhetoric that it basically is the art of citizenship, you know? The short answer, the somewhat oversimplistic answer is that rhetoric really kind of grew up in ancient Greece at the time that democracy was being kind of cooked up and experimented with. And obviously that wasn't the first place there was democracy and it wasn't the only one or anything like that. But those two things really grew up together because the idea was that if you don't have a king or some dictator making decisions for you and instead you're having like a group of people make decisions together, that's a demos, then people need to know know how to do those things like they need to learn how to make arguments that persuade other people they need to learn how to speak in public all of those things so rhetoric was actually something that was like a natural thing to grow alongside democracy because people needed these skills to interact in public basically so they're totally related and they're still related now but now it's a little different because it's not just a couple hundred privileged men who are part of a democracy like it was in ancient Greece, but um, a much larger and more diffuse group of people. Going in that direction, uh, last semester you taught a course on women's rhetoric. What's the distinction between rhetoric in general and women's rhetoric? Oh, there's no distinction, but I think teaching a class about women's rhetorics or studying women's rhetorics just allows us to spend time thinking about women's work and women's voices and contributions. One of the things we consider is like the way that women use rhetoric. In some ways, it's the same as the ways that men use rhetoric and in some ways they've had to adapt like special strategies in order to be heard and kind of get permission to have a voice in a in a society so that's why we study women's rhetorics but women are like all humans naturally rhetorical people <laughs> so so it's more about thinking about what do they do that might be a little different and also women's rhetorics tends to always kind of overlap with other marginalized groups so it's you can't talk about women's rhetorics without talking about black women's rhetorics or, you know, Muslim women's rhetorics and things like that. Mm. So to me, I think it's a nice way of remembering that it's not just 
the white guys who wrote the textbooks who we can learn from, but all these people who've been practicing and speaking over the years. Were there any like moments in that class that stood out to you? I'm trying to think. I've taught the class twice now, so I don't, I can't totally keep the two different times separate in my head. But I think one of the one of the recent examples of women's rhetoric that I know we've talked about in both sections is like the way that mothers of black men who've been murdered by police use open letters and, and things like that to kind of provide advice for other mothers who are facing the same situation. But it's also like this really interesting genre where it's open to the public. And so it's also making this public argument about what it's like to be a black mother, to raise young black men, Right. So that's one of the more interesting things, I think, just in terms of like current events and current rhetoric was just thinking about how motherhood is still a really important rhetorical trope or hmm. um, like a strategy that you can use and how it's still like super relevant in a lot of the issues we're talking about. Yeah. like There's a good mix of pathos and ethos. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A lot of it's about having credibility to speak from. Right. Like hmm. I can talk about this because I am a mom and we should all care about our children. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So in previous episodes, uh, you've talked to the Rough Draft before about the suffrage movement. Mm -hmm. Uh, Shout out to season seven, episode three for our listeners who haven't heard that yet. Mm -hmm. Um, So how does women's rhetoric impact our politics? Oh, man. Well, I mean, look, women are like all humans up to some good things and up to some not so great things. So I'm not pretending that women's rhetoric is always good. So for example, women have been really, really powerful actors within like the so-called pro-life movement, right? And again, drawing from that motherly ethos, that motherly persona and credibility and that pathos, that kind of like family values thing women are some of the best kind of people speaking on behalf of that movement. And we see one of those women now in the Supreme Court, you know, our Amy... Um, Amy Cohen Barrett. Yeah. Cohen Barrett. yeah. I'm, I'm always getting her two last names um, mixed, but yeah. yes. And so, you know, she's a very intelligent and persuasive kind of spokesperson for that, that particular position. And then at the same time, we see women leading and giving voice to all sorts of other other positions, right? And so we see women, like the Women's March is kind of back again. It was back last weekend. Mm -hmm. They were really active around the 2016 election. Um, And then last weekend, they were kind of coming back and talking about having marches all over the country again and talking about women's bodies, women's autonomies, choices, those sorts of things. So obviously, women are also leading like on the more progressive sides of these debates. But I would just say there are women all over the political spectrum, and they're very involved in making arguments. Yeah. Yeah. And those protests can be seen as like body rhetoric, I guess you'd say. Some of them, sure. Sure, sure. But a lot of it is arguing about women's bodies, Mm. for sure. Arguing about women's bodies, who should control them, right? But also, um, yeah, I guess this kind of embodied rhetoric, too. I'm thinking about when I went to the Women's March in 2017. So it was after the 2016 election in in D.C. One of the things that really struck me as a really, like... important kind of savvy rhetorical move although i'm not trying to be cynical about it i don't think this was just like a strategy was a lot of lot of women brought their children to the march Mm. and 
and that's like again that's like this really interesting thing of being like on the one hand as a mom I can totally imagine they actually just want to expose their children to this kind of advocacy yeah. right and show their children that like hey there are a lot of other people in this country who support these more inclusive more progressive kinds of policies right but also it's really powerful to see moms with their children you know making arguments in behalf of women and future women little girls right yeah. so a lot of the signs that people were holding were kind of like about opportunities for little girls when they grow up or controlling little girls and, and that kind of stuff and and that was a really powerful I don't know it was just a, like a really powerful strategy or practice yeah so how has the overturning of Roe v. Wade impacted women's rhetoric or mm-hmm. changed well I mean I don't know if it's changed it yet but it certainly motivated a lot of women mm. to speak up right and so we're just seeing a ton of women's activism right now and again on all kind of sides and perspectives of that particular issue so you know I grew up in the evangelical like conservative Christian world and some of the people that I see on Instagram you know some that I know personally like they are really celebrating this moment as like something they've spent their whole lives looking forward to and that kind of celebratory rhetoric is really powerful too it's Aristotle calls that epideictic rhetoric and it's yeah, it's yeah. like hey you know we're celebrating something that we find important right and that and that's what is happening right now and so they're going to use that celebratory mood or celebratory kind of message to say hey keep voting right it matters mm. but then of course you see a lot of women and interestingly I think we're seeing a lot of women who might be described by some people as moderates or just like not super activists a lot of women being really upset and shocked that this kind of thing could happen mm. in 2022 and so becoming much more just vocal and I've certainly seen that even in my own family and friends people who maybe haven't spoken out a lot about politics publicly um, are speaking out about this issue so again I don't know if it's changing women's rhetoric. It probably is. It's probably just kind of too early to say like what that means. But I think what we are seeing is a lot of women speaking and participating in in these debates. Yeah, it is interesting to see how those dichotomies, it kind of transcends political party. Yeah, I think, I don't know the statistics about it, but it's definitely one of those things that shifted a lot in the last 30 years, um, kind of like gay marriage has. Like, it's just overwhelmingly popular, you know, among like the average public, um, something that most people don't want to see undone. And it's also, yeah, I don't know. I mean, people are also sharing their stories about all of these issues more too online. Um, And so it's not just like the Me Too hashtags and and things, but it's also stories about, um, you know, rape and incest survivors who like are sharing why the right to the access to abortion matters, you know, and why it's a health issue and not just sort of this culture war issue. So I feel like that's one thing women have always been good at rhetorically is just sharing stories and kind of putting like a human face on things. And so I would expect to see, and I am seeing that, um, a lot of people sharing those stories a little bit and making it less of like a taboo thing to talk about. Yeah, there was an article in um, Young Scholars in Writing, Mm -hmm. I think it was not the last one, but the second to last Mm -hmm. one. Yeah. Great analysis of Twitter. 
yeah based on that yeah stories and it used to be something that women really couldn't talk about and that's still i i think it's still very much stigmatized Mm. so i'm not pretending that it's like easy for people to talk about usually there's a lot of trauma you know it's there's a lot of reasons why women might not want to talk about their experiences with abortion or pregnancy or failed pregnancies you know things like that but the more we do talk about it in public the less simplistic i guess the narrative is Mm. you know and finally, uh, how can students help further women's rhetoric and rights? <laughs> besides, besides the obvious. <laughs> well, I mean, I think it's just a matter of using the voice that you have, you know? That doesn't mean it always has to be like in these big kind of political grandstanding or activist ways. It can just be speaking up. I've been talking with some female students lately about even just speaking up when you see kind of the bystander stuff, right? So if you see someone telling a joke that's actually demeaning to women or to other groups, right? Like just speaking up and saying like, hey, actually, I don't think that's funny. It, you know, it's hurtful, right? Yeah. So I, I encourage us to think about women's rights or like quality and things in, in those small moments of life too and not only in our policies. Obviously, it's important for everyone to vote, but I think yeah. it's also so important just how we treat each other every day well i think it's a great note to end it on thank you dr Co, for talking with us yeah thanks and now a word from our sponsor the writing center here at york college of pennsylvania are you having trouble researching a topic need help developing a thesis not sure how to properly cite a source the writing center can help you located in room 11 of the humanities building the writing center supports any type of writing and writers at any stage of the process They offer individual consultations in person or over Zoom with trained peer and professional tutors, Monday through Friday. The Writing Center also offers drop-off essay reviews for students who can't fit a meeting into their schedule. Simply submit your assignment, and a tutor will send you comments the same day. Plus, this feature is available every day of the week. All you have to do to schedule an appointment is log into your MyYCP account, click on the Writing Center icon, and choose Writing Tutor from the drop-down menu at the top of the page. It's a super helpful and judgment-free way to get feedback on your assignments. So what are you waiting for? Head on down to the Writing Center in Room 11 of the Humanities Building today. Now back to our originally scheduled programming. All right. Sounds like a good take. Yep, that was a good one. See you after class later? Yeah, I'll be there, but, you know, might not be. (laughs) I feel that. What's going on? Who's spraying jam all over the windows? Uh, what's that smell? Oh my god! Are you alright? John. Well, let's talk about the Senate raid first. We got John Fetterman, who's the Democratic candidate, running against Dr. Mehmet Oz, who's the Republican candidate. And uh, I'm going to start with Fetterman here. So Fetterman is a Harvard graduate. He began his political career as the mayor of Braddock, PA, which is a town just outside of Pittsburgh. He attempted to run in 2016 for a Senate nomination, um, but was unable to secure the nomination in the Democratic primary. Uh, That went to Kate McGinty instead. In 2017, he was diagnosed with cardiac myopathy, which is a condition that makes it difficult for the heart to pump blood to the rest of the body. In 2018, he ran for lieutenant governor in PA and won. 
On February 4th, 2021, he announced his candidacy for Senate. He got 58.7% of the vote in the Democratic primary. What I noticed when looking at that what was kind of suspiciously absent from that 58.7%, especially for a Democrat, was a lot of the African-American population. Um, a lot of people suggested that that may have had to do with the 2013 incident in which he chased down and uh, detained a black man who was jogging in his neighborhood. This is when he was mayor of Braddock, and he, he has since not issued an apology for this, and I, I think... Uh, thinks that he was in the right for doing this. As far as policy goes, on marijuana, he believes PA should go, quote, full Colorado, something he said earlier last year. He believes marijuana charges should be expunged from people's records, and this, along with prison reform, are two of the largest parts of his political platform. He's for the abolishment of the death penalty in PA, and believes prison should be doing more to rehabilitate prisoners and to offer clemency to inmates who are upstanding. He's pro-choice, believes Roe vs. Wade should be codified. On the environment, he opposed the Green New Deal and has supported some fracking efforts in PA. Um, he believes in what he calls a balance between decarbonization efforts and creating jobs in fossil fuels. As far as guns go, he supports universal background checks. On healthcare, he believes it is a human right and supports whatever policy gets us to people obtaining that human right. Uh, he supports raising the minimum wage, and he's a strong supporter of the police, believing that the, quote, defund the police movement is idiotic. He thinks there should be stricter limits, however, when police can use deadly forces. And on taxes, he does support a wealth tax. So that's Fetterman. Awesome. Thanks, Nate. So for the Republican candidate, Mehmet Oz, also probably more commonly known as Dr. Oz, he won the Republican primary over uh, David McCormick. He's a New Jersey resident and I believe has been so for most of his life. So I don't know why he's running for Pennsylvania Senate, but there it is. Uh, he's famously known as Dr. Oz uh, from the show that first aired in 2009. It was promoted by Oprah. Many of the things that Dr. Oz has promoted on his show uh, have led him to being denounced by many members of the medical community. He also endorsed the use of hydrochloroquine, which is again is a debunked uh, cure for COVID. In terms of politics, he's donated to several Republican politicians in New Jersey, and he has almost no experience in PA politics. So again, it's kind of weird why he's running for Senate in Pennsylvania. In in terms of policies for the environment, he's interested in producing natural gas and coal in Pennsylvania and calls for uh, PA to gain energy independence. Dr. Oz opposes the legalization of marijuana, uh, doesn't oppose it for medical purposes, so I guess it's par for the course in terms of PA politics. Uh, in terms of abortion, he favors overturning Roe v. Wade, but he does favor exceptions for rape, incest, or when the mother's life is threatened. In terms of healthcare, he would vote to repeal the Affordable Care Act, and then he believes many transgender kids. Uh, we'll go back to the way they were biologically conceived. That's an exact quote from him. Very, very transphobic, very unscientific. That's Yeah, it's a, it's a political position, not a medical one, as, as Nate said. Yeah, on to the gubernatorial race here. Doug Mastriano is the Republican candidate for governor in Pennsylvania. He is a retired U.S. Army colonel who served from 1986 to 2017. He's currently the senator for PA's 33rd district, which is all of Adams County. He took office in that position on June 10th, 2019. He was born in New Brunswick, New Jersey, and received a bachelor's degree in history from Eastern College, um, where he participated in the ROTC program there. He received a master's in strategic intelligence from the Joint Intelligence College in 1992. He received a master's degree in air power theory from the Air University in 2001, a master's degree in military operation, art, and science from the Air University in 2002, a master's degree in strategic studies from the Army War College in 2010, and a PhD in history from the University of New Brunswick. There are some interesting 
interesting talking points on his educational background here. For example, a professor at the University of New Brunswick named Jeffrey Brown, who is listed in Mastriano's doctoral dissertation, says he was awarded his PhD on, quote, shaky grounds and calls a lot of his work, quote, dishonest, sloppy, and indifferent to facts that contradict his claims, end quote. More than 150 problems were found in his doctoral thesis, and another PhD candidate at New Brunswick, James Gregory, who is also an educator there, has said that this amounts to, quote, academic fraud. He's a prominent figure in Christian nationalist circles and calls separation of church and state a myth. He has made references both online and in person to various QAnon talking points and conspiracies, including 9-11 conspiracy theories. He's a close ally of Trump and has his endorsement. He did attend the January 6th rally in Washington, D.C., and was seen on video amongst those storming the Capitol, bypassing Capitol Police barriers. He was subpoenaed by the United States House Select Committee on the January 6th attack in February, but he has since stopped cooperating with that body. He opposed efforts to legalize recreational cannabis, claiming it, quote, causes an increase in violence, mental illness, and DUI. On COVID, in March 2020, he called for a suspension of HIPAA laws to allow the Department of Health to share names and addresses of those infected with COVID in the community. He spoke at at least one anti-lockdown protest and called for a mask burning party in Gettysburg in response to PA's mask order. He introduced legislation that would make it easier for PA citizens diagnosed with COVID to access hydroxychloroquine, azithromycin, and ivermectin. No medical benefit to these drugs has been found according to multiple studies. On guns, in July of 22, after um, a lot of mass shootings in the country and specifically after the, the uh, shooting in Uvalde, he introduced legislation to arm teachers and staff inside of school, a piece of legislation that was criticized as dangerous and kind of scary. On the big lie in the 2020 election, he's been a proponent of baseless claims that the election was stolen. He organized an event in Gettysburg on November 25th, 2020, at which Rudy Giuliani gave a presentation and Donald Trump participated by phone. He um, endorses views that the election was stolen and has these views have vastly raised his profile. In December of 2020, the Philadelphia Inquirer remarked that this increase in profile was most likely going to lead to him announcing his candidacy for governor, which of course it did. He joined two lawsuits, one Texas versus Pennsylvania and the other Kelly versus Pennsylvania, both of which sought to overturn the election results and both of which were dismissed outright by the U.S. Supreme Court. On abortion, he supports outlawing abortion with no exceptions, including the invent of threat to the mother's life or rape or incest. He supports criminal penalties for healthcare providers that provide abortion and has called Roe vs. Wade, quote, worse than the Holocaust, end quote. On voting, he seeks to restrict voting and would repeal PA's no-excuse mail voting law. He states that his appointee for Secretary of State, which would be under his purview if elected to office, would reset voter rules, meaning PA residents would have to re-register to vote. Legal scholars have stated that this would be a clear violation of federal law and that it may as well violate state law and and as well as protections afforded by the Constitution. At a 2022 event, he suggested he might only certify election results if Republican candidates win. On the climate, he thinks climate change is, quote, just a theory and based on pop science. He has also suggested there are parallels between climate change and to weathermen being wrong about the weather sometimes, which is odd. On education, he has called for cuts to the funding of public education and would reduce the per-student funding in PA from $19,000 per student to around $9,000 per student. On immigration, 
he supports removing undocumented immigrants from PA and supports busing them to Democratic strongholds, including Joe Biden's hometown. He opposes efforts to ban conversion therapy within the state. He calls efforts to discourage conversion therapy disgusting um, and calls homosexual children confused. Ties to far-right extremists and militias, including the three percenters. So that's Doug Mastriano, the Republican candidate. Yeah, just a real piece of work. Like, Dr. Oz is a piece of work himself, but then Mastriano just kind of dials it up to 11. Yeah, it's just it's disgusting. So on to the Democratic candidate for gubernatorial race, uh, Josh Shapiro. He's been the PA Attorney General since 2017. He's been a member of the House of Representatives from January 2005 to January 2012, so a long history in local politics. And he studied political science at the University of Rochester and earned his degree from Georgetown. So in contrast to the very shady PhD that Mastriano got. Uh, in, in terms of policy, for abortion, if elected, Shapiro says he will protect abortion rights across Pennsylvania and veto any bill that would outlaw abortion in the state, which is extremely important now that uh, with the overturning of Roe v. Wade, it's now the state's side. So it's, that's a very key issue, I think, for this election. Uh, he proposed a plan to allow uh, for $250 gas tax refunds uh, per passenger vehicle up to four vehicles per household. Uh, proposed funding this through the American Rescue Plan. So that's definitely something that's definitely going to help commuters on campus and, and just regular drivers in general. I know it's kind of sucks having to pay $50 a gallon gas when it was 35 not even a year ago. So he's endorsed by eight Republican former officials, PA Supreme Court Justice Sandra Schultz-Newman, Congressman Charlie Dent, City Republican Chairman of the Lawrence County Board of Commissioners, former Secretary of Homeland Security, and Republican Michael Chertoff. He's also a member of the Jewish faith. He's a very observant and conservative who keeps kosher. Yeah, so that's all four candidates for the two big races here in PA, the uh, senatorial race and the gubernatorial race. Obviously here at the Rough Draft podcast, we are supportive of two particular candidates over the other ones. But yeah, important races both. Get out there and vote. All right, now let's get into this discussion between Krim and Maddie. This is your host, Karim Kaisedo Reynolds, with special guest Madison Schweitzer and also John. What's on the schedule for today? Today we're going to be talking about the upcoming elections on November 8th and have a more discussion-based podcast concerning the candidates and the issues that surround them. First off, just a couple important dates to keep in mind. Uh, the deadline to register to vote is Monday, October 24th. If you register to vote by mail, it must be received by the 24th. The last day to request a mail-in ballot and absentee ballot is Tuesday, November 1st by 5 p.m. November 8th is the big day, the general election. Polling places are open from 7 a.m. to 8 p.m. Visit vote.pa.gov for more information about your polling places. Mail-in ballots must be received or dropped off in person by November 8th at 8 p.m. So for today's episode, we will be presenting you with one of the major topics coming out of the Senate race between Fetterman and Dr. Oz is obviously the stances on abortion. I know that it's a very sensitive time in our nation right now, now that Roe versus Wade has been overturned. We have Madison here to talk a little bit about abortion. Hi everyone, my name is Madison. I am a women and gender studies minor. In this upcoming election, I am gonna be voting democratically, so I'm gonna be voting for Fetterman because I am 
pro-choice. I came out to be pro-choice when I got into college after I became a gender and studies minor. The biggest reason I am pro-choice is because of women's health. During pregnancy, people fail to realize that abortion doesn't just end the pregnancy, it can ultimately save a mother's life. And there are times when pregnancies do happen to need to be terminated because of loss of child in the womb. The baby has a deformity and will not survive to full term. It can ultimately save the mother if she has some type of disease and can't carry the child to full term. And there are times when the child can't even be carried to full term. And the biggest reason that I am pro-choice is because it's ultimately a right for bodily autonomy. If I were to get pregnant and my baby was sick, I would have to make the harsh decision on whether or not I want to carry to full term, even though my baby will most likely pass away in the womb, or I would have had the right to say, my baby is hurting inside of me. I don't want to hurt them anymore. I'm going to end it. But sadly now, I do not have that right. As of right now, I do in Pennsylvania, but there are sadly in other states, I do not have the right to an abortion. And it doesn't necessarily mean that them banning abortion, abortion is going to end. It just ultimately means that abortion is going to end healthy because you're not having healthy options to end the pregnancy. Like banning abortions just ban safe abortions. Even before Roe v. Wade, women were still getting abortions. If we ban abortions in Pennsylvania, it's just going to ban safe abortions. The majority of abortions happen well before 15 weeks. Normally, any time after that, the majority of abortions that happen after 15 weeks are usually either because they couldn't schedule it in time or it was a wanted pregnancy, but then there was miscarriage or some sort of like deformity to the baby that would cause harm to the mother and to the, the fetus itself. I completely understand when you're talking about, you know, like, well, when is a baby, you know, have a heartbeat and stuff. But what about the mother's life? Is her life not as important as the unborn child? And as well as what about if the baby is sick? An ectopic pregnancy can be viewed as an abortion, even though it's technically a miscarriage. But now women aren't allowed to end that unhealthy pregnancy. It's a dead fetus, ultimately, but because of Roe versus Wade being overturned, a mother now has to spend carrying the dead child in her stomach. And that's just ultimately awful, in my opinion. And also, it's not really the government's decision whether or not a woman should be able to terminate a pregnancy or not. All right. Thank you so much, Madison. And changing topics here from abortion to uh, recent criticism of Fetterman that I think we should address here on the podcast. Recently, Fetterman's been criticized as not being, quote unquote, tough on crime. This goes back to his support of clemency for the Horton brothers. If you're not sure who the Horton brothers are, this is, there's a great NBC News article that I'm going to be reading from here by Henry J. Gomez. The Horton brothers, who maintained their innocence in a deadly 1993 armed robbery, left prison last year when their sentences were commuted by Democratic Governor Tom Wolf after a recommendation by the State Board of Pardons and Fetterman's chair. Uh, so he's been getting criticism for this, and he also actually hired the brothers on to his campaign team, which is really cool because it's a way to rehabilitate them for a crime they didn't commit, essentially, but they were locked away anyway. And to talk about that more, we're here with uh, Karim. Karim, what's your background with uh, 
this subject. Yes. Hi, everyone. Um, I am a senior psychology major and a sociology minor, as you know. Of course, this does not make me the most qualified person to discuss this, but crime and rehabilitation are major points of emphasis within both of these fields. I also have hands-on experience back home in New York, working with my county legislator, as well as other community projects to help out the youth and to help with all different sorts of legal and, you know, government issues. And I, I can say for sure that I am in support of Fetterman's claims about getting people out of prison who are nonviolent offenders and people who committed things like, you know, serious crimes like murder and, you know, things like that just because you're a felon and because you're a criminal does not mean that you are automatically an evil person and who deserves to spend the rest of your life in prison. I also believe that people have distorted view of this idea that prison is just where the bad guys go when you throw away the key and that solves everything. Unfortunately, it doesn't. We know that after 25, 30 years, those people, they have to come home and they don't have jobs, they don't have anything to do. They are not being rehabilitated while in prison. And unfortunately, that just means that by not working towards rehabilitation, either in jail or outside of jail, by not giving people jobs, by not giving them places to go, we are actually incentivizing people to continue to commit crimes and to commit worse crimes because at the end of the day, once you take away someone's resources, you take away someone's means of to live and to survive, you're going to get worse outcomes. We also know that many people go to prison for petty crimes that involve drugs like, you know, weed and other sentences that are often disproportionate for black and brown people. We know that many people are also going to prison intentionally because of our homeless epidemic in the country right now where many people are minor offenders that are looking to commit crimes basically for the structure and to find a home. And ultimately, the issues that we should be focusing on in this country are education-wise. We need to be educating people more on mental disorders. We need to be educating people more on how our own government operates and what is the role of a prison, what's the role of a police officer, what's the role of rehabilitation sites. Because a lot of times people, they hear rehab, they hear, you know, you're going to you're going to go, instead of the prison, you're going to go to a mental hospital, you're going to do X, Y, and Z, you're going to be put on this program, and the idea is that the person is being let off easy. That's not actually true. Rehab is rehab. You know, prison is supposed to be designed as both punishment and a rehab facility. And if you are focusing only on the punishment, the, the statistics say that you're not actually deterring the behavior. To deter the behavior, you have to either change the environment or you have to actually work on the mental health of the, the person who has committed the offense. And I know that it's hard to look at people who have committed crimes as human beings, as regular people that you know you can trust and that you would want to hope for and to, I guess, that you would want to see succeed. But it is important to remember that it's always best to be kind to other people. Kindness is always the answer. Kindness is always the way forward. And by being spiteful, we are only giving into more acts of evil and continuing the cycles of abuse that have gone on in this country. And again, 
after 25, 30, 40 years, you know, people get life sentences, they come home, they need something to do, they need places to go. And if you're a person that is either convicted wrongfully or your sentence is disproportionately larger, that only emphasizes the issues. And it's destroying communities, it's destroying parent, parent-child relationships, and everything in between. And we want to minimize that while also opening up the doorway for more opportunities for people to get better in our country so that we can continue to be the greatest country in the world. And yeah, and going back to the NBC article, the spokesman for John Fetterman, Joe Calvo, states that, that Fetterman believes that there are people that should spend the rest of their life behind bars in prison, obviously. I mean, unfortunately, there are people in our society that do terrible things. Absolutely. And they, they can't be a part of Absolutely. everyday life. Some people cannot, unfortunately, or choose not to be rehabilitated, and we know those people. Yeah, but then he also supports policies that free the wrongly convicted and provide second chances for deserving and non-violent offenders. Oh, and also to go off of uh, the discriminatory like locking up of black and brown people for uh, drug crimes, Biden just introduced, or, yes, or Biden just, uh, is he, he's reclassifying marijuana, and he's pardoning all marijuana federal drug charges. That probably won't be a lot of people just because it's on the federal level. There's more state level charges in that area that would affect more people. So it's again, it's important to vote for Shapiro, who supports legalization of weed. Hopefully, if he is elected governor, he will also pardon state marijuana drug charges as well. That would honestly help a lot of people out in that regard. All right. All right, well, that's what we've got on the upcoming gubernatorial and senatorial elections here in Pennsylvania. Two very important races. Obviously here at the Rough Draft Podcast, many of us specifically support two candidates, and I think we've made that obvious in in our talks here. However, no matter who you support, it's important to vote. It's part of our civic duty, so let's get out there and do that. Some important dates here. Um, Registration deadlines by mail, October 24th, and in person, October 24th as well, at your local election office. If you intend to vote by mail or need an absentee ballot, you need to request one by 5 p.m. on November 1st. The election will be held on November 8th, and votes must be cast by 8 p.m. on that day. So put that on your calendars and uh, get out there and vote. Next week, we're going to have an episode on the Writing Center. We're going to be interviewing Dr. Kim Peck, who is the director of the Writing Center. We'll be talking about her history with writing, with reading, and what the Writing Center has to offer for all kinds of writers here at YCP. So stay tuned for that. Uh, Please like and subscribe on Spotify and wherever else you listen to podcasts. Hope to see you next week, and thanks for listening to the Rough Draft Podcast. I'm just an old coal miner, and I labor for my bread. This story in my memory I've here told For the sake of wife and baby How a miner risks his life For the price of just a little lump of coal Don't forget me little darling When they lay me down to Tell my brothers all these loving words I say Let the flowers be forgotten Sprinkle coal dust on my grave 
in remembrance of the UMWA. Mother Jones is not forgotten by the miners of this field. She's gone to rest above, God bless her soul. Tried to lead the boys to victory, but was punished here in jail for the price of just a little lump of coal. When a miner in the morning gets his car up to the face, he'll set some timbers and he'll bore himself a hole.